Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I am Ira Jersey, the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. Today we go over the Schroders with Lisa Hornby. Lisa, thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. Thanks for having me, Ira. So we're talking about the uh, the FI part of FIC, and you work on the multi-strategy fixed income desk at Schroders. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, and your mandates that uh, and the money that you manage. Sure. So. I run the U.S. multi-sector fixed income team at Schroeder's. So our team strategies range from short maturity fixed income to core fixed income to tax aware mandates for those that are tax paying clients. Uh, we run about 30 billion in assets across this book of business. So since you, you are multi-sector, why don't we just start with your big picture view? So, you know, which sectors do you particularly like and which ones do you think, um, you know, are going to underperform over the near term as, um, as we move through 2023 and into 2024? So our premise this year, Ira, has been that bonds offer compelling value. Um, you know, when you look at yields available on offer across the fixed income market, they are the cheapest that we've seen in basically a decade. And of course, this is obviously the result of a very, very painful interest rate reset uh, in 2022. But nevertheless, where we are now, um, we see much more opportunity in the bond market. And I think it's interesting that fixed income is not just attractive versus itself when you look at it versus its own historical comparison, but also versus other asset classes as well. You know, we look at the dividend yield on the equity market. We look at the earnings yield on the equity market, for example. And, you know, you can achieve, depending on which metric you're looking at, double or triple that, um, or at least comparable in a two-year treasury now. So I think that there is some, some, some good value to be had in bonds. I think the best part of it is that it's actually the more defensive sectors within fixed income now that actually offer the best opportunity. So one of the areas that we like the most, um, which is a, a, a real change for us, is actually agency mortgage-backed securities. We've, we've really uh, moved heavily into this sector over the last several months. There's obviously some good reason why agency mortgages have cheapened, but we think given the interest rate volatility environment and the carry that you can earn now in that sector, there is some some good reason. Now, this is a AAA rated, highly liquid sector. Um, so you're not taking the same type of, you're not taking credit risk um, that you would be in some of the other sectors of the market. So we like that a lot. Um, the higher quality parts of the corporate market, investment grade corporates, some of the shorter maturity assets we think offer a lot of value here. Um, and then lastly, treasuries. You know, you don't have to take a lot of risk now to earn a lot of yield, especially in the front end of the, tre the treasury market. Um, so those are those are the areas that I would highlight as probably offering the best opportunity. Two things you said there toward the end, and, and I want to focus a little bit on mortgages because there's a, a couple of technical issues with mortgages these days, particularly the Federal Reserve running off its balance sheet. Um, 
averaging 16-ish billion dollars a month in runoff because uh, even though the cap is 35 billion that, that the Fed wouldn't mind running off, um, the prepayment speeds in mortgages are incredibly low and, and that's made the durations much longer. So how, how much are you concerned if you buy mortgages today with prepayment risk if interest rates do go down a little bit or do, do you think that that's not that big of a deal right now? So the tricky part with mortgages, of course, is that there's lots of different parts of the coupon stack. And so the, the part of the market that you're talking about, the low coupons, which are fully extended, uh, we're, a, we're a little bit less favorable on that portion, just because that is the part that the Fed is running off. And that is also the part that the banks that have come into the headlines recently, um, that's the part of the market that they owned as well. So that is being sold to a heavy degree. We're, we're, we're more positive on the higher coupon uh, part of the coupon stack where you actually earn a fairly decent spread over treasuries, volatility adjusted and not volatility adjusted. Um, so we're, we're, we're more favorable. We're more favorable there. In, with regards to prepayment risk, look, I think uh, about 2% of mortgages currently today are actually prepayable. Um, so it's not a very high proportion. I think typically if you buy agency MBS when volatility is very, very high and spreads are wide, that does generally lend to attractive prospective returns. And I think we're, we're, we can check both of those boxes today. Great. And, and so talking a little bit about um, the front end of the treasury curve, um, you know, as, as a trade. So uh, obviously, if you, you know, purchase treasuries today, uh, the two year treasuries today, you'd be making for a little over 4%. Um, you know, how concerned are you about the potential reinvestment risk, say you get a year from now and, uh, and, and you're correct and interest rates are significantly lower? Um, you know, how, how concerned would you be with um, uh, with needing then to find other investments as some of these uh, securities that you would buy today, they either roll off the index or if you hold them to maturity over a couple of years, that you wind up reinvesting later at, at even lower yields. So, so talk maybe a little bit about the curve dynamics and how you might play those from a portfolio perspective. Yeah, so the curve is a tricky one. Um, you know, typically when you get an economic slowdown, and, and, and make no mistake about it, our view is that the economy is slowing over the next six to 12 months. Um, you do start to get an environment where the curve starts to steepen, but what typically happens is it's, it's called a bull steepener. In other words, rates are rallying across the curve and the front end is falling by more than, than the back end. Um, I don't think we're, we're quite in steepening territory yet. And the reason for that is that the market's still undecided and the Fed, frankly, is still undecided as to whether or not they're done with this rate hiking cycle. Um, so I'm a... You know, I'm a little bit less concerned with that that steepening part of the curve. I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think you can you can you know buy sort of intermediate duration, as you alluded to, maybe three to five three to five year part of the market, even you know extending out to potentially seven years, although that part of the curve is a little bit flat. Um, and you have a pretty good environment there because you're still in a situation where you're earning the front end you know, very, very attractive rates at the front end. You have a little bit of rate cuts priced in. Typically, the market underestimates the degree of Fed activity, both on the upside and the downside. So the market was clearly did not accurately assess how many rate hikes were going to happen in 2022 and 2023, underpriced the number of rate hikes. I think we're probably 
underpricing the degree of rate cuts out in 2024 as well. Um, so I think when you earn that, you own that intermediate part of the curve there, you're going to benefit from some rate cuts that that have yet to be priced in. Um, so the, I guess the, the answer to your question is, I'm comfortable owning some duration there. Um, I think yields around 4%, you know, offer some good value uh, in that in that intermediate belly part of the curve. Great. So, so let's talk just a little bit about, you, you know, when you say you want to be defensive, you obviously want to be defensive because of some of your fundamental views on, on the outlook on the economy and owning, owning treasuries and mortgages over, say, some other spread product, for example, is, is one of your things that you've highlighted so far. Talk a little bit about how you make that assessment between, you know, relative value between those various sectors, right? Broadly speaking, I guess you're talking about like, you know, high yield investment grade corporates and then uh, mortgages and, and treasuries. And then we can move a little bit into a discussion about spread product itself. So the first, <clears throat> the first and foremost metric for us is, is the price. Um, so the valuation of any given sector how that looks versus its historical range, how that looks versus other sectors. So when we talk about, for example, investment grade corporates, today spreads are around 145 basis points or so over treasuries. You know, that is more or less in the 70th, 70 percentile versus its longer term range, which means that spreads have been cheaper 30% of the time over the last, let's say, 10 years, um, and they've been more expensive 70% of the time. So that does, you know, from a kind of just arbitrary perspective that suggests that you should have an overweight to spread risk, all else equal. Um, what it also says, though, is that you do need to be cautious because the degree of spread winding that happens between, let's say, the 50th and 70th percentile is fairly muted, maybe 15 basis points or so. But from the 70th to the 100th percentile, that could be 100 basis points. So when you're in that widening section of the of the, of time, there could be quite a lot of widening to come, um, and that you know, coupled with our 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 macro view, which does tend to to err towards slowing growth and potentially um, a more challenging time for for corporate fundamentals, it says to us that we want to be invested in corporates. We want to own some. <clears throat> we probably want to fare on the defensive side of the spectrum. And um, we want to be cautious as to when we, how and what aggressively we add. I think there will be better opportunities um, to add corporate credit risk later this year. Certainly on the high yield side, I think, you know, spreads there are, are actually closer to median rather than the 70th percentile. Um, so for that segment of the market, we're definitely being uh, behaving a bit more defensively. You know, I think the key, the key here is that this year has been punctuated by periods of volatility. You know, we started in, in spread product. We started the year um, 125 over, got down to about 110, 115, and widened all the way out to 165. So there's been these peaks and troughs, and I think that will continue. You know, we're still in an environment where liquidity is receding. Um, the Fed is still tightening policy, and even if they were to stop hiking rates, if they were done, Rates are staying on hold for the foreseeable future. Um, there's no, you know, in our view, there's no prospect for for rate cuts for 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 some time now, um, which suggests that this, you know, sort of five percent base rate is going to affect more borrowers who have to come to the market over the next, let's say, six months or so. Um, and I think that does pose 
that's going to pose a challenge and that's going to continue. We're going to continue to see these pockets of volatility uh, come to the come to the market. So some of that volatility recently has come from uh, the banking sector and, and the financial sector. How concerned are you within the corporate landscape with uh, with bank credit? Uh, you know, obviously there's a difference between regional banks and the and and the large, more uh, systemically important, um, you know, multi uh, multinational banks. Um, talk a little bit about some of the risk that you're either worried about or, or not worried about within uh, within maybe the financial sector within the corporate market. Yeah, so broadly speaking, when we look at investment grade and even high yield fundamentals, they look fairly healthy. Uh, companies have you know, used this low rate environment or the previous low rate environment to pay down debt. Uh, interest coverage looks very, very healthy. Uh, debt you know, leverage metrics look better than they, than, than they have done in the past. So we're starting from a strong place. That being said, you know, we do think that there is the scope for earnings to start to come down over the next six to 12 months. And that should disproportionately impact some of the weaker borrowers. Uh, we don't see a specific sector. You know, oftentimes when you look at past crises, you, you can point to a specific sector. And, you know, this time, obviously, banks have been in the headlines. But when we look at the broad fundamentals of at least the large money center banks and even the super regionals, we are we're not concerned. You know, we we do think that the fundamentals are are strong. I mean, the, these banks, certainly over two hundred fifty billion, are very well regulated. They're very well capitalized, um, and you know they do have high high degrees of liquidity. So we don't we you know we don't really see a particular sector stress. We think this is potentially going to be a crisis where maybe some of the weaker quality issuers, the more leveraged uh, companies are going to have some more trouble refinancing in the future um, and, and keeping their margins. And I think that that's the part that's not priced yet. And that's the part that I think the market could struggle with over the coming months. So then, so broadly speaking, with consumer cyclicals, consumer staples, right? So, so are there are there other sectors within the corporate landscape that you think are maybe a little bit more levered or a little bit more sensitive to interest rates than others, where you think that that some debt, when it comes to market or has to be refinanced, is going to, um, you know, not be very well received. You know, some of the when when I look at the corporate uh, issuance calendar recently, it's had a bit of an effect on the rate market on some days, especially when you have massive issuance. But you, you do have a lot of very highly rated cash rich and investment grade companies that have had zero problem issuing, whereas, uh, you, you know, you, you have seen a little bit of spread widening and a bit of a concession and some other issues. So are there, uh, are, do you think that that will continue? And, and if so, are there certain sectors that you think are particularly at risk within uh, within the corporate landscape? I, I, again, uh, again, I think it's probably more about the individual borrowers themselves than a specific sector. Um, you know, if I had to if I had to point to something, I would say, you know, commercial real estate obviously is is in the headlines. Some of the the some of the issuers within that space may, you know, may face more difficulty coming to market. Especially especially depending on the tone uh, of the market at any given point. Um, I think, you know, on the loan side, loans have held up very, very well this year and delivered, you know, pretty strong performance, but that, you know, that could be a segment of the market that is maybe a little bit more challenged um, in the, in the coming months. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't know that it's necessarily 
outside of the real estate side of the equation, I don't know that it's necessarily industry specific as much as sure. borrower specific. So, so it's a more of a credit pickers market, you might say, instead of a, instead of a sectoral allocation uh, exactly. play at this point. So, so, so last, last question here. Um, so you mentioned too, that you also do some short-term investments. And since you mentioned the loan market and a large portion of the loan market is, is floating rate, uh, the floating rate loans as well. What, what about other sectors? And, and do you, um, you know, have an allocation to asset-backed securities, um, you know, autos and home and um, uh, automobiles and credit cards and and you know if, if so if if you were allowed to allocate to those is there any compelling argument for or against that particular asset class? Um, so we we've we've pared back our our ABS exposure, uh, you know, from a valuation perspective and also just from you know other opportunities that have merged over the last three to six months. Um, you know, we still have a bit. Uh, in the way of AAA CLOs, still think that those offer some value. Um, you know, as you said, floating rate and very, very high quality, obviously senior. Um, outside of that, we don't see a tremendous amount of value in the ABS space. I think, you know, we'd rather be a little bit further out the curve. We're more comfortable with, with fixed rate now. Last year, floating offered more value in our view. This year, uh, given our, our views on the Fed, we think you know, we're comfortable locking out, locking rates out a bit longer. Um, so less necessity to own floating rate paper in our view. Great. That was Lisa Hornby from Schroeder's. Lisa, thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. Hope to have you back on in the near future. Thanks, Ira. Now we turn to our interest rate intro segment with Will Hoffman. Will, what question do you have for me today? Hey, Ira. Thank you for having me as always. Today's question is about your favorite topic of all time, the debt ceiling. So given that the X date is likely right around the corner in early June, markets are rightfully focused on a potential U.S. default. But could you talk a little bit about the aftermath of any deal, such as how the Treasury is going to refill its extraordinary measures, as well as the TGA, uh, and the impact this issuance may have on rate markets? So let's first talk about what the TGA is. It's, it's the Treasury General Account, and it's basically the government's checking account that is operated by the Federal Reserve. Um, typically, over the last decade or so, the Treasury Department has tried to keep at least a, a couple of weeks worth of maturing, um, the, the, the amount of a couple of weeks of maturing debt in, uh, in the TGA, so usually between 300 and $600 billion. Um, after the pandemic, it was significantly higher for a long period of time, but, but realistically 400 to 500 billion seems to be the the standard operating expense and that's certainly what we've modeled in our longer term um, issuance forecast is somewhere around the half a trillion dollar mark for for the TGA. Um, so if you think about the Federal Reserve as any other company and, and particularly as, as a bank, because it obviously is a bank, in fact, it's called the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, which is where majority of the assets and liabilities of, of the Federal Reserve system in, in aggregate are held, um, the liability side of the balance sheet has four major uh, pieces to it. The, the, the first and, and currently largest is uh, reserves. So those are bank reserves. So that's the um, the opposite of uh, so, so a bank reserve is, is effectively like a deposit at the uh, at the Federal Reserve, and the asset on the other side of that held by uh, is held by banks, and that's that's called a bank reserve. Uh, the second is currency and circulation. So this is literally the paper currency that people have in their pockets. It could be vault cash as well. So so basically the cash that's held by banks, um, and then 
you have um, the uh, reverse repo facility and the reverse repo facility is a new facility that was created not so long ago for money market mutual funds and, and a few other uh, investors to, um, to, to basically place their cash at the Federal Reserve in exchange for the Federal Reserve giving them uh, a treasury security in a, in a repurchase agreement. And it's a way to, to basically drain reserves from the system, but also allow um, uh, allow uh, money market funds, which have to invest in treasury securities, a way to invest in treasury securities without buying a ton and ton of T-bills and, and seeing T-bill yields be significantly lower than the, uh, than the, federal, uh, the federal funds uh, target range, which the Federal Reserve set. So it's a it's an interest rate uh, policy management facility that that they've created. And then the, the fourth and final large piece is the Treasury General account. So those are the four kind of pieces to, to the Fed's balance sheet. So if any one of those goes up, um, if the Federal Reserve is is not increasing the, the size of its balance sheet overall, if one thing goes up, then something else must go down. Um, so once the the uh, the Congress and, and the president agree on a debt ceiling deal. Uh, we think that there'll be about $100 billion of net uh, T-bill issuance very, very quickly um, and in, uh, about every week. Uh, and after about six or seven weeks, you'll probably have upwards of $750 billion in uh, uh, in new T-bills that are issued. Now, once those are issued, that cash goes into the Treasury General account. Um, and as I said, because the Treasury General account now has gone up by $700 billion, something else must go down by $700 billion, uh, especially since the Federal Reserve is, is reducing its assets and running off its balance sheet. I suspect that most of that, um, that money will come out of bank reserves, but not all of it. And the reason is, is that, um, is, is that one of the one of the reasons why 2A7 money market funds have have over two trillion dollars in the reverse repo facility is because they're concerned about um, the, the the debt limit and it's easier to keep money in this overnight RP facility um, instead of buying T bills. But once there's a whole plethora of T bills that are probably trading a little bit cheap to uh, the 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 RP facility yield then you'll likely see okay demand for that. So, so I suspect that there'll be some beta where, um, where a large portion and, and a lion's share of the, um, uh, of the TGA money comes from reserves, but then there will be a fairly sizable piece that also comes from the RP facility. You know, exactly what that beta is going to be, I'm not sure. You know, just round numbers, let's call it 25% from the RP facility and 75% from reserves. Um, now, the, the, the risk with reserve balances going down so much is that we might come pretty close to the minimum amount of reserves that banks need to operate in the current regulatory environment, and that's called the reserve tipping point. So the thing to look out for in that situation is uh, the standing repo facility. Now I have to describe what the standing repo facility is, but basically it's a way for banks to um, it, it's a way for banks to increase their reserve balances by loaning treasury securities to the Fed and the Federal Reserve then will give them cash and and that will increase their uh, their reserve balances. So so as soon as you start to see any usage of the uh, of this of the standing repo facility, that'll be a sign that we've reached that reserve tipping point. Um, but I think. Well, we should talk about that a little later. Maybe that's something for a podcast in June because, you know, right after the debt ceiling is is actually raised. So, Will, I, I went on a little bit long there, so I'm going to say thank you. I appreciate you your question, and uh, we'll have you on in a, in a fortnight or so when we have uh, our next FIC Focus Macro Matters edition recording. Sounds great. Thank you very much.
And with that, listeners, thank you very much for listening. We appreciate your time today. If you have any ideas for questions or guests you'd like to see us have on, please reach out to us on the Bloomberg Terminal. On behalf of Lisa Hornby, Will Hoffman, I am Ira Jersey. We appreciate listening. Until next time, be well.